Last Sunday, we read from Genesis 3 about Adam's sin in the garden and the fall of all humanity and all creation into sin, suffering, and death. But in response to Adam's sin, God also made a gracious provision, a gracious promise, Genesis 3, 15. A savior would be born of woman who would crush the head of the serpent and redeem humanity and all creation from the curse. And so the firstborn of Adam and Eve brought hope. Would he be that redeemer? No, the firstborn human, Cain, was a murderer. He killed his own brother, Abel. The firstborn human was a murderer. The first brotherhood ended in murder. That tells us something about the horrible reality of the fallen human nature. And then in the remainder of Genesis 4, we have the account of the descendants of Cain. Now, though they were skilled in many ways, they were an ungodly line through which sin increased upon the earth. At the same time, however, God in his grace gave Adam and Eve another son, Seth. And although Seth and his descendants were, of course, corrupted by sin, nevertheless, God in his sovereign grace sovereignly chose to work through the line of Seth to continue his plan of redemption, the plan to bring a savior into the world. And Noah was a descendant of Seth. Noah's father, the good Lamech, named him Noah because Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. Noah's father said, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. You see, Noah's father knew of God's curse upon sin, but he also knew and believed God's promise of a redeemer born of woman who would reverse the curse and bring rescue, relief, and rest from sin, suffering, and death in this fallen world. He hoped that his son would be that redeemer, and so he named him Noah. Well, that gets us to chapter 6. I'm not going to read or comment on chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, that very intriguing passage about the sons of God taking wives from the daughters of men and also about the Nephilim, the giants who were on the earth in those days. Scholars differ in their interpretations of that passage, but they all agree on this, that the opening verses of chapter 6 emphasize the increasing wickedness upon the earth. Even with the godly line of Seth, the world was, so to speak, awash in wickedness. And so, we will now begin the reading of selected portions at Genesis 6, 
verse 5. And I'm going to invite you simply to listen. I think it would be very difficult for you to follow along in your Bible as I read selected portions of three chapters of the Bible. So let us now ask for the Lord's blessing to help us as we hear his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your faithfulness, your mercy, and your steadfast love upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And in his holy name, we ask for the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon us afresh. May your word go forth in power and accomplish that which you purpose, that it not return to you void. And may it work, saving and sanctifying grace in our hearts to the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us hear the word of God, beginning at Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. 
and all mankind. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And after some passage of time, then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And now to him who loves us, who has washed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, despite the fact that we decorate children's nurseries with artwork depicting happy animals cruising along through beautiful blue water, and despite the fact, I don't know why, but despite the fact we teach our children to sing silly songs about the arky, arky, going on by toozy, oozies, elephants, and kangaroosies, roozies, the account of Noah's flood is not a children's story. It is the account of the most horrific, catastrophic cataclysm in world history to this day and unto the second coming of Jesus Christ, resulting in the terrifying death of every human and creature on earth with the exception of Noah's family, eight persons, and the selected animals on the ark. The great flood was a deluge of devastation, destruction, and death. There was nothing 
cute about it. The great flood was an act of God in his wrath and justice against sin. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that is the devastating divine diagnosis of fallen humanity. That's the reality about each one of us apart from the saving and sanctifying grace of God. The practical reality of the doctrine of original sin is that apart from the saving sovereign grace of God, at the core of fallen human nature, down to the very intention, down to the very motives of the thoughts of the heart, at the very tap root of fallen human nature, at the very tap root of the human personality, there is an inborn, innate opposition to, hatred of, rebellion against the good and holy almighty creator. Due to Adam's sin, we all are born that way and bent that way. In order for us to understand the account of the great flood, we must understand the sinfulness of sin and the heinousness of sin's infinite offense against the holiness of the infinitely holy one. In order for us to understand the account of the great flood, we must understand the sinfulness of sin and the heinousness of sin's infinite offense against the holiness of the infinitely holy one. The scripture says the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. That verse does not mean that God thought that he had made a mistake in creating humanity. No, rather, this verse helps us to understand from our human perspective that the creator loves his creation and in particular, he loves humanity whom he created in his own image. And it grieved God to his heart to see what man had become. But in order to maintain his own holy justice, and in order to reveal the sinfulness of sin, in order to display his righteous wrath and justice against unrepentant sinners, the Lord, with a grieved heart, decreed that he would blot out man from the face of the land. But, but, there it is at verse 8. This, this paragraph leads up to verse 8. But the most important word in the Bible, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The great flood is not only about God's wrath and justice poured out upon unrepentant sinners, 
It is also about God's grace which saves repentant sinners by the provision of safe shelter from the flood of his righteous wrath. It is also about God's grace which saves repentant sinners by the provision of safe shelter from his righteous wrath. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And verse nine says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. You see that in the midst of all that rampant wickedness, Noah had been preserved by God's grace as a godly man of faith. By God's grace, Noah had believed the word of the Lord taught to him by his faithful ancestors in the line of Seth, particularly his godly father, Lamech. And so Noah had repented of his sins and placed his trust in the Lord and sought to live in obedience to God. Noah was a righteous man by grace through faith and by grace through faith, Noah walked with God. And in that personal fellowship with Noah, God told Noah what he was about to do. And he commanded Noah therefore to make an ark of gopher wood. And Noah believed and obeyed. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Noah believed the word of the Lord and obeyed his command. Noah was an example of true faith. Now, regarding the flood and the ark, here are a few points you might find interesting. Some geologists, for example, see evidence of a worldwide flood in the Grand Canyon with its sedimentary deposits laid down, as they were evidently very rapidly, including marine fossils more than a mile above sea level. Hmm. and fossilized shellfish in the Himalayas. Hmm. Who'd have thunk? Now, of course, this data is interpreted differently by scientists who reject the biblical account, but the biblical account accounts for this evidence very well. Let me add that our faith, does not re our faith rests on the word of God does not depend on this external geological evidence, but in conversation with unbelievers who may say that the flood is just an ancient myth, this external evidence may prove helpful to enlighten them. Now, the ark was about 450 to 510 feet in length. That's at least, at least one and a half football fields long. That's a pretty big boat. And the roof was more than 50 feet above ground level, higher than four stories of a modern building. It had the storage capacity of about 450 semi-trailers. And just for the sake of illustration, that would be storage capacity for 112,500 animals the size of an average sheep. 
That's room for a lot of animals, especially if they were not full grown. And still there was plenty of living and storage space for Noah and his family. Now, one of the really interesting pieces of secular scientific research I came across is that a group of physics graduate students at the University of Leicester, England, did the math based on the specific dimensions given in Genesis 6 and added in the estimated number of animals according to their kinds and they came to the theoretical conclusion that the ark as described by Genesis full of animals could in fact float. Now this was published by the Smithsonian Magazine online. And this research was being done not for the sake of defending the Bible. One of the physicists said from his perspective, you don't think of the Bible necessarily as a scientifically accurate source of information. So I guess we were quite surprised when we discovered that it would work. Again, our faith does not depend upon that kind of external confirmation, but it may be helpful in conversations with people who don't take the biblical account seriously. But now let's turn to the flood itself. The scripture says that on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. The tectonic plates of the globe shifted and buckled and water from under the earth gushed upward and the windows of heaven were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. In other words, this was way more than a 40-day thunder shower. Water was pouring upward from below the earth as well as from above the earth. This catastrophic cataclysm changed the geography and topography of the entire globe. But Noah and his sons and Noah's wives and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, two and two. Male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Now, I want everyone to ponder that last sentence. The Lord shut him in. Visualize that gigantic door somehow being closed shut by the invisible hand of God. At that moment, Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives and the animals on the ark were safe. They were safe. They were saved from the wrath of God by God himself. They were saved 
from the wrath of God by God himself. But what about those who were on the other side of that door? What could save them now from the wrath of God? Nothing. And all flesh died that moved on the earth and all mankind. Would God really do that? He did it. He shut the door. And that's the terrible reality. There comes a point at which it is too late. So, dear friend, get in the boat while there's still time before the Lord shuts the door. After 150 days, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat in northeastern Turkey near the border of Iran. But it took about another five or six months before the earth was dry enough for Noah and his family and the animals to come out of the ark. The first thing Noah did was to build an altar to the Lord, offer a sacrifice, and worship the Lord. It pleased the Lord, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. We sing these very words about God's faithful preservation of his creation in the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And then God blessed Noah and his sons and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth just as he had commanded Adam and Eve. After this devastating deluge of death, there was, so to speak, new life in a new creation. The creation had been baptized, so to speak, buried in the water of death and brought forth anew out of the water of life. And to assure Noah and his family that they did not need to live in fear of rain, no kidding, God established his covenant with them that never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. You see, it's his bow, no longer a weapon of wrath. It's pointed upward, not downward to the earth. His bow. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Indeed, isn't the rainbow a beautiful and wonderful sign of God's covenant mercy and faithfulness to his creation? To, to run outside and look up at the rainbow brings joy to every child and everyone who is a child at heart. How sad. 
how tragically sad and how horrifying it is, truly horrifying. And it, it ought to make us shake and shudder. That the sign of God's covenant promise of mercy and grace and faithfulness to his creation has been claimed as the symbol of celebrated human pride in sinful rebellion against the good and holy creator. That's terrifying. But let us be clear. The story of Noah's flood applies to us all. It is the story of God's wrath and judgment against all unrepentant sinners. And it is the story of God's grace and mercy in providing salvation from his wrath and judgment. Dear friend, the flood warns us of the judgment to come. And the ark promises us a way of salvation. The Apostle Paul proclaimed, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, Jesus Christ, from the dead. The day of wrath and judgment has been set. And on that day when Christ comes again in power and glory, God will judge the secrets of men, the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Romans 2.16 Get in a boat now while there's still time. Jesus said concerning that day and hour of his coming again, no one knows but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, dear friend, do not be like those fools in the days of Noah. Get in the boat before God shuts the door. The story of the great flood warns us of the last judgment when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 
That's Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses seven through nine, straight out of the New Testament. Likewise, 2 Peter 3, 5 makes reference to Noah's flood, saying that the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, but the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That day is fixed. And it doesn't matter if Christ comes in two years, 20 years, 200 years, or 20,000 years from now. It doesn't matter because we're all going to be there and we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The question is, on that day, will you be safe in the ark? or shut out of it. God commanded Noah to construct the ark with very specific, detailed instructions. And therefore, Noah's ark was able to withstand the deluge of God's wrath and protect those within and carry them into new life in a renewed creation. But Jesus Christ is the true ark of eternal salvation. And think of the specificity with which God has provided safe shelter for you, a man born of woman yet without sin who could live upon the earth as your representative and who as a man in your stead could bear your sins in his own body on the tree, who as a man could, would, and did die as the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for sins, united with the divine nature of the eternal Son of God, who by his divine power could endure the deluge of God's wrath without being obliterated. And by the power of his own divine life could overcome death and rise again and bring all those who are in him into everlasting life in his new creation. That is the specificity of the Savior whom God has provided so that you through faith in Christ would be saved from the wrath of God by God himself. Come in faith to Jesus Christ on the cross and be saved from the wrath of God by God himself. And by the power of his resurrection, he will bring you safely into new and everlasting life in his new creation. Jesus Christ is the one and only one who can save you from the wrath to come. 
Therefore, come to him in humble repentance and faith. Come to him for mercy and grace. Come to him for cleansing and new life. Come to him for redemption and rest from the curse. The name Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. Noah's father had hoped that Noah would be that promised redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent, but he wasn't. But from the line of Noah, through his son Shem, came another man, Abraham. So from the line of Seth, through the line of Noah, through the line of Shem, through the line of Abraham, came another man born of woman who did crush the head of the serpent. And do you remember what he said? Come to me, all you who labor, who toil, and are heavy laden and burdened. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Come to me, and you will find rest for your souls. Don't be like those fools in the days of Noah who thought that, you know, everything's always going to be okay. Don't be like those fools. Get in the boat now while there's still time before God shuts the door and find rest for your restless soul in Jesus Christ who saves us from the wrath to come. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, for your great merciful provision of him for us, that we might not drown in our sins, but be delivered and brought into your everlasting kingdom. Bless, O oh Lord, this your word preached, and may it take deep root in our hearts, our souls, and our minds, that henceforth we may live as your glad, joyful, obedient children to the glory of your name through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Amen. In response to the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm the faith of the one church through history and throughout the world, the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God.
God.